0: Hello! Welcome to my secret obsession. In today's bonus episode, we are talking with Cheryl L.G. Trent. Cheryl loves to write about stories skirting famous events and specializes in ancient, medieval, Native American, and clothing history. Additionally, she loves to tell stories of the interlopers and outcasts, the parts of history that were not written in books but did exist. Her goal is to share adventurous stories that express the struggles of women, outsiders, and the invisible. Hello, we are talking today with Cheryl Trent, and she is an author of fantasy and historical fiction. And you also do a lot with historical clothing. And that's something that I've never really heard much about. So could you tell us about that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I am I am a professional seamstress and costumer. And I am a self taught seamstress. I had an absolute love for h- historical clothing in fact my first research paper in junior high was on the history of clothing um, and it wasn't until i was probably into my master's that i realized that what my that's what my major in history needed to be um, I had my bachelor's in ancient medieval history and anytime i did a research paper i would do it on the clothing i would you know i would study about coda Hardy or i would study about Etruscan wear you know it, you know different things and that's when i came to the re- realization when I had to pick my foci for working on my master's, which it didn't finish, but
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I still I, get you
1: know, to tote. I <laughs> still get to tote pretty well. Um, yeah, I read plenty of books, including like the history of stripes, but uh, that love of research and that love of clothing and all of that, it's all wound together because clothing mm-hmm. is part of cultural history. And um, in my books, I will often bring up clothing, but I don't like going to heavy detail, but I point them out as being part of the culture you know it's like certain things they're wearing certain certain fabrics especially in like daughter's fortune which we'll talk about today it's a merchant book and so one of the big um things that was being exported out of india was textile there were actually laws being thrown up all over the place in england and france banning the textile because people wanted it more than the English and French textiles. Uh (laughs) So and those are and I think that's one of my first things that really fascinated me was consumption laws, because I didn't understand the word to begin with. And, um, and then I had to figure out what that meant. And what that meant was, if you weren't of a certain culture or class, you were not allowed to wear certain items or certain cloths. And there were tons of rules, including color. If you did not fall into a certain category, you were not allowed to do it. And consumption laws have existed all throughout history and, you know, just these guidelines. We finally started breaking the rules Mm -hmm. on who could wear what and when, probably in the 80s uh, and into the 90s, which is, you know, so 1990s before we really started Saying, yeah, wear whatever you want.
0: (laughs) That's interesting because I've never really thought about that. I I was born in 73. So I'm kind of like the 80s is is my teenage years and stuff. Even those simple rules
1: where you're not allowed to wear white before Labor Day or, you know, don't wear polka dots and stripes together. Those were very strict rules. And if you broke them, you know, societally, you get in trouble. And they hadn't been actual laws by that point. They were just societal laws. But you have religious laws that tell certain people that they can't wear certain things. You have state laws that had done that and and governmental laws that have gone throughout history that have said you can't wear certain things unless you are of this class or even gender, especially gender.
0: (laughs) Because I I have a memory as a child. um, My mom took us shopping and I was trying on some clothes and, you know, we were in the the, the room and we're taking the clothes off and everything. And I remember hearing two women in another stall over and they were talking bad about this woman. Cause she read, she wore red to yeah. church. Yeah. And and, and so I, yeah. I remember that stuff, but I guess yeah. in my mind I always thought of that as like being, um, cause we were very religious yeah. um, more like the church rules rather than society rules. Yeah. Well, I mean, churches, uh, church.
1: it's church is a, a society. It yeah. is, it is a, you know, a cultural group. And you don't realize that when it's normalized and you don't realize that when, you know, it's just something that you've been used to that may be completely different somewhere else. You know, a great example is red and white. Uh, Red is a good luck color in the uh, Asian countries versus white is the color of death. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) that makes a big difference, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it makes a huge difference. So the clothing history, the historian stuff heavily entrenched in all of my books mm-hmm. and all of my research because can't separate the two. And I absolutely love researching. So if I get any opportunity to like go down a rabbit hole, I'm going.
0: <laughs> right. exactly. Now You said you're a seamstress too. Do you, mm-hmm. um, like, who do you work for? Do you hire, do people hire you to make their own clothes? Like my daughter has somebody that she likes to buy clothes from for her and, and the woman. And, you know, she makes them exactly what Christiana wants. Do you do that? How do people purchase your clothing?
1: So I'm right now on a commission by commission basis. I did a big transition in my life recently and pretty much gave up all my worldly goods. So uh, <laughs> I have a limited access and spaces and stuff to work on stuff. But uh, I had Etsy for, you know, since the dawn of Etsy, I started selling my clothes and my friends like, here's this new place, go do it there. Um, So, I did it there. Um, I went to conventions. All of my convention experience has to do with selling clothing. Uh Uh, I had a a kimono booth and then I had a steampunk booth. And so, I would make kimonos or I would do upcycle clothing for steampunk. I would actually, and then I would do Victorian pieces and things like that, Um, or, you know, anything that the customer wanted me to try out and do. And just yesterday, I actually um, wore my Christmas tree dress. Which oh, okay. was based on a early Mantua style, which is kind of from the time period that Daughter's Fortune is. But I have a uh, this dress that has garland hanging from it, and I have a star wearing my hair and and so and it's and, and it's a lot of fun because it's got historical elements to it, but at the same time, I'm a tree <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> And I love doing that. I love doing that. I've done that. Uh, more often than not, I have like gone, I have decided to go ahead and make a costume, but make it out of a certain time period. Uh-huh. Um, I made a Black Raven, and I think I did that one as a medieval style. And then I did a uh, Tom Servo from Mystery Science Theater 3000, He's a robot. And my kid actually came up with this concept and did him as a 50s style sci-fi okay. type looking character. And so I'm in this big, you know, poodle, poodle type skirt and, you know, for his round base. And I've got on this uh, little pillbox hat with a with a bowl that looks like this clear dome on top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of fun. Lots of fun. That, that sounds fascinating. Do you ever post those on Facebook?
0: Or oh, do you like- yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, tons of it. You can hit if you hit my socials, you'll find it. I have a separate TikTok that's under um, my main handle that I've always had is CLG Butterfly, okay. and you'll find almost that that's you know my Etsy, that's my um, any of my socials you'll find it under that. And then for the books, it is Cheryl LG Trent, but you can like even then I've got I've even got the costuming that's on the front of Daughter's Fortune, which I did. Um, I did a whole video on that and posted it on that page.
0: Very cool. I, you know, I've never really met somebody who does has such a passion for clothing. That <laughs> it's, you know, my daughter, um, she does love to dress up and mm-hmm. wear some of those historical pieces, but uh, nothing to, to like compare to you. And so it's just interesting because I, you know, she had one other friend that liked to do this. And so they would, sometimes we would go to like the old mansions around town and mm-hmm. they'd mm-hmm. stuff wearing their clothes. You know, that was fun, but I, I never realized that there was such a passion among people who, who really dive right into this. Oh, yeah. Get yeah. consumed by it. I think that's fascinating. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And you can find it in any of the subcultures. Like I mentioned, Steampunk, you've got goth. you've got Lolita, you've got um, Renfair, um, you've got J-pop, you know, all of them, you know, they're kawaii. You, you have so many out there, especially for the, you know, our children they have kicked open that door and they have said, you know, wear what makes you feel good. That is like almost the number one philosophy. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And something I always promoted uh, with my children (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, was that not only wear whatever you want, understand that clothing is a construct that you know there is no assignment of gender to actual clothing you can wear whatever you want so
0: whatever feels comfortable to you. whatever feels Happy. comfortable it makes you and feel you know, great that's, yeah <laughs> that's as I remember and you know like I said I mean I grew up in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. or same so you know there were certain colors that boys didn't wear mm-hmm. and certain colors that you know and and I remember my girls when the people would say something like oh boys don't wear pink they're like what <laughs> you know, you have a gender, you can wear whatever you want. And yep. it's just kind of interesting to see how that has changed um, through time. You know, well, yeah,
1: and it's all about societal stuff, because color used. Uh, pink used to be a masculine color. Pink used to be, could be considered too bold of a color for women to wear, too masculine. Really? Yes, I that was during the, that. Victor- during the Victorian era. It wasn't until the 1950s when marketing decided that pink was for girls and blue was for boys, that they started
0: with the that separation. That's funny. I didn't. I did not realize that. Yeah. yeah. That it was such a, a recent. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and to go with the colors for um, gender, I would took my daughters. They're they're twins, and so they look. They're not identical, but they do look similar. Mm-hmm. And one of them had a pink bow in her hair. You know how you can do with babies. You can mm-hmm. have little unicorn hair up. You know. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so one had a pink bow in, and one had a blue bow in. And um, this husband and wife, they were, they were older than me. I probably said they were Mm -hmm. probably in their sixties at the time. And the husband assumed that the the daughter with the blue bow was a boy. Yeah. And the wife made the comment. She said, she's got a bow in her hair. You know, like, isn't that (laughs) awesome? He said, yeah, but it's blue. So I just thought that was funny. You know, we all kind of laughed about that, that he was taken aback. He thought, well, it must be a boy because it's a blue bow.
1: Yep. Yep. Yep.
0: So that, and I did not realize the thing with the, fit with the pink was as well, recent as 1950s. That's yeah. And that is, you know, cause I've had those conversations
1: with my parents and, okay. and, you know, and different things like that. And I do try, and that's why I always bring it up is that a lot of times what we think is normal is just the current societal understanding. It is yeah. just something that's just been, you know, put in there. And just because it's normal, doesn't mean it's okay. That's usually what I tell people. It's like, just because right. it's normal, doesn't mean it's okay. You know, right. when we were growing up, you didn't talk about people being gay. Yeah, you, know, you right. just, you know, did not bring that up. You know, well, if that's not okay, that's making them invisible. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: true. So, but that's so interesting with the the clothing that mm-hmm. that is very cool. Now, when you also mentioned like you're neurodivergent, mm-hmm. um, how do you think that plays out in your in your writing or just everyday life?
1: I think differently than other people. I, I kind of understood that. I have never been officially diagnosed, you know, with any sort of, you know, autism or anything like that, uh, you know, ADHD, but I have all the signs that I've dealt with in my whole life. And I've always known I'm different. Like I think different, I act different, I process things different. And um, part of that advantage is, is that because I see things differently, I'm able to break them down. Um, I also can, uh, you know, highly empathetic so I can relate and I can process someone else's you know, point of view. Um, and I think that helps a lot in writing because you because the characters have different voices. You right. know, it's not like they blur together and you get confused who is who because those characters have the same personalities. And I think that helps out a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, being the dyslexic part, um, just sheer determination to be able to. Put what's in my head down on the paper, despite the fact that I can't spell. Mm-hmm. That I struggled horribly <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to the point of having throwdown fights with my junior uh, English professor. To turn around in my senior year, I remember you know during that time I f- you know finally understood what a semicolon was used for, kind of yeah. sort of, and <laughs> and uh, and I'm in that hyper focus that that all you know, all that that comes with it. Not only did I type it out, and i that's one of the things, first things I learned with my neurodivergence, I can't write very well. My hand mm-hmm. hurts real fast. And so I learned how to type at a very early age. And you know, by the time I was 13, I was full, you know, we took that typing class and I just went off on it. Um, mm-hmm. So I had typed everything out, but I wanted the feel of the time period. So I hand wrote it all out, tea stained it folded each of the diary entries up, wax sealed them, and tied them with a bow and handed that in with the assignment.
0: <laughs> I, that sounds awesome. It sounds like it was like, you know, and as a teacher, I, I used to teach second grade. I mean, when you see that, you can really see that a kid has poured themselves into Yeah. The assignment. I
1: she was so impressed with it. She actually handed it to Mrs. Zerby, who was my uh, junior English teacher. Uh-huh. And and after like I bumped into both of them because I think she called me back for something we were talking, Miss Bartlett and I were talking. And Mrs. Irby came in and she just looks at me with a scowl. Mm-hmm. She's just staring at me. And she was a tall woman. She was tall, uh-huh. you know, violent red curly red hair. And she's kind of looked down at me, she's like, I have to admit it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Like killed her to say that, huh? <laughs> and those things stick, you know. You yeah. know, even though I struggle, even though it's hard for me to get what's in my head out on the page for so many years, you know, to the point I'd hand it to an editor and it would they bleed red, but they'd be going, "No, don't stop. It's good. We just have to get the grammar right." And so yeah. that's kind of what I've been doing for the past twenty years: is writing those stories and you know working on the grammar, learning all that stuff that has taken me a lot longer to learn because of my neurodivergence, because of my dyslexia. Don't give up. Keep at it. It's practice. It's all about practice. You know, it is. Yeah. You have the passion, just take, just practice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. So now there's so many things now that where you can just speak and it'll copy what you're saying. Do you use voice to text uh, for writing your books at all? Does that help? or No, because I am terrible describing things
1: <laughs> verbally. Like uh-huh. I'll forget words, but I do type and I have always used like that was the one of those first things is when I figured out that I could type faster than I could write. I said, mom, uh-huh. get me a typewriter. And she got me an electric typewriter that had autocorrect on it. So anytime I misspelled a word, it would go beep, beep. And I would back up, you know, use the little eraser and do it again. And yeah. then, then it was onto computers and, you know, and this isn't, you know, this is the mid eighties that I'm right. doing this, you know? <laughs>
0: Right, you know, and it, all of that was kind of new.
1: Yeah, all that was new, and you know, and then so I started um, using the typing and doing that. When word processor came out, I was immediately on top of it. autocorrect, all of it. I have yeah. every tool that has come out. I've used it to my advantage, but I use it as a tool. I'm, you know, I'm not like write this for me. I'm like, I'm going to write this out, and then I'm going to use this as an aid and see if it's going to. Sound like my voice, you know, because because yeah. I come across that a lot. Is, is like, then I thought that a lot with a lot of my editors is to be like, well, this is grammatically correct, and I was like, yeah, but listen to the way this sounds when you read it out, because mm-hmm. that's the funny part is is that even though I like don't do voice to text, when you read my work, it's pretty easy to read out loud. It flows really well because mm-hmm. it has to for me to be able to process it.
0: Mentioning your book, um Daughter's Fortune, mm-hmm. um, I thought that was very interesting. I really liked it. it. It seemed fun. And I just read the first chapter and I liked how um Jenet and I'm not even sure. I mean <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. It's know Yeah. It's Jenot, yeah. Jenot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. know Um and I never took French. I took Spanish. Yeah. So. <laughs> that worked against me there. Yeah. I just, I liked her character and, you know, even, even her friend, the. You know, the yeah. Yes. Yeah. Jean here. It, I liked how they interacted with each other and she seemed confident and it seemed like she even enjoyed the fact that no one would expect her to be the captain of this boat.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, she's used to it, you know, she's right. She's just part of the fun of that. Um, I get told a lot that my characters have excellent, you know, chemistry and interaction. And and I even when I'm writing, I try to make sure that, you know, if I'm describing a scene, it's built into the, uh, the scene and it moves with it. You're not stuck reading a description. You're like, oh, we're in you're know, we're in a court. OK, we're in right. a court. I've got that vision now we can move on and go with the dialogue, you know? <laughs> right. yeah. Um, you know, is very confident. Yeah. Oh, female businesswomen existed during this right. time period. Um, and that's part of what I do with my historical fictions is I want to bring out those individuals that you, history hasn't told you were part of history. They just kind of, you know, shoved them to the side. They weren't that important or they whitewashed, literally whitewashed over them. There were no laws yet Mm -hmm. to keep her from running her business. And she even goes through some stuff in book two that does kind of limit her. And she has to fight through that stuff in order to be able to um, continue to do what she wants to do. And that's part of it is I don't want it to make it a plight, but I wanted to make it, you know, this is something that just like Today, we deal with certain social norms. This is something that she dealt with, you know? Right.
0: <laughs> it is. It's interesting because I feel like um, when I was a kid, I look back and I was in the Bible belt of the South and, mm-hmm. you know, the the notion of um, gay rights, it just seemed completely unattainable or like, you know, that would never happen. And now, of course, it is happening and people are and I feel like now maybe the transition that's challenging is with um people trans uh gender. Yes. And I kind of think, you know, my daughters are seeing that. And I've thought in my head, there's always something that people kind of have to deal with. There's growth and, and their challenge. And then you 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 know, like homosexuality now is completely normal. It's interesting because I think what in 30 years are our kids going to be dealing with that's different. And there always
1: is, and um, and it's an ebb and flow as something I do talk about with my kid who is transgendered, um, and talk about with history itself is that's one of the things as well, is when you go further into daughter's fortune, you are going to learn that Jean-Pierre is gay. You're going to learn about those interactions that are going on. And there is always existed. It's not like they didn't exist. It's just right. we didn't talk about it. And, you know, and we dealt with it as a society, how we dealt with it at that time, um, something, you know, so sodomy laws exist during this time period. But there's also a social acceptance of like, if they're not causing any problems, just don't worry about it, you right. know, and, you know, and and that ebbs and flows throughout history. Um, you and, you know, even during this time period, there's a fam- very famous uh, woman the uh, and she was a famous woman for cross-dressing, for dressing as a man. Her father was the fencer for the king, at uh, the head fencer for the king, and she learned how to fence. So she uh, ran off with her lover, and they did uh, shows where she would, you know, fight as dress as a man and fight as a man, and pretended to be a man for a while. And then she ended up seducing a woman um, who ran off to a nunnery. And she ran off to the nunnery too to get her and then burned down the nunnery, you know, and she she was notorious famous because this isn't even the end. Then after she does all that, she they find out she's an amazing opera singer. And so she becomes a famous opera singer who is notorious for hitting on men's wives, getting challenged to duels and won six every one of them, 16 duels. And she won every one of them and killed those men.
0: Follow. she
1: existed and everyone's like oh yeah that's a bisexual woman and don't don't get her in a fight
0: you know yeah <laughs> don't so challenge her to a duel uh, you know. that woman actually existed she's just not your character she's not my character she wow. actually, yeah
1: she was she's an actual historical character and you'll come across her briefly in book two um so if you check the vellas, that's already been and that's already out and so you will come across her um and saran her lover and that's kind of part of the historical fiction that I do is you do kind of run across those characters. I describe Janot and her involvement in history as being just to the left of the screen.
0: You know, if I tried to make a character like that, people would say, well, that's just too extreme. That would never happen. You know, type of thing where it's like, oh, it's unbelievable because there yeah. are so many different how it sounds like she grew as a person and, and the adventures that she went on with living her life the way that she wanted to live her life rather than the mold that she was supposed to.
1: Yeah. And that's why I put Dabiné in there is because that is a real life history. And it's one that uh, the current Jinn loves unknown, you know, another not well-known fact is the integration of minorities in culture. Even during that time period, all the way back to the 12th and 14th century, it was not uncommon for there to be this um, interracial culture in England, in Europe, all over. Uh, black Dutch was very common. It was very common for uh, what would be considered a more to become a Dutch citizen and then have generations of children that are Dutch, you know. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and and same in England too. When I did uh, did additional research, England was the same way. So it was not uncommon for individuals who what we would consider now to have never had any sort of stake, any sort of citizenship or anything like that, being natural everyday citizens because right. we were told they couldn't be. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, it is interesting because obviously people accept and learn what is common to them. Yeah you know, and, don't
1: think well, and what things. they're told you know right, and, told. and and you yeah, look beyond what you're told it's very hard to
0: think mm-hmm. outside that box yeah it is and sometimes it's even discouraged to, to think outside oh out, yes absolutely you know, for sure. <laughs> yeah. you're not allowed to think outside the box no don't do that <laughs> that is just fascinating ideas. <laughs> right. yeah, don't get any ideas <laughs> this is interesting stuff i didn't know that you um had such a broad Wealth of information that you can like share with people and kind of teach, teach us in your books. That's fabulous.
1: Yes. Yes. And absolutely that trying to like shove it down your throat or anything like that. I'm just trying to make it natural as part because it did exist naturally as part of the history that you can go through that. Another example of that is during the fateful universe series, which is um, this changes everything to catch a cat in Rosemary's garden right now those stories are all set in different historical periods and i go and i go and do the research and i figure out the information and i figure out what the story i want to tell and then i bring that out and i bring up things that you may not have known about right. that time period and <laughs> bring those in there so that you can get a better understanding of how that world existed beyond what you've already been told
0: mm-hmm. right well that's fascinating do you want to tell us just a little bit about um, Daughter's Fortune? Daughter's no. Fortune, not a pirate book. <laughs> That's right, not a pirate book. And, um, I love that name because, you know, obviously when when I started reading the book, it does seem like she's a pirate or, you know, that type of character. Um, so it is interesting that you have not a pirate book. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that actually came
1: around incidentally because I said I'm writing a book. And it's going to be about a lady sea captain. And I would, and I'd immediately go, but it's not a pirate book. Yeah. And, and then it just kind of stuck. And I, you know, and I was like, you know what, that really fits. And I kind of like it. And it's a little cheeky and it works for the book, you know? It, it is. I do like it too. I thought that was great. And because it tells, it tells them that it may not be a pirate book, but it's probably going to be something I like. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Who would you say you base Geno on?
1: No one in particular. The best way I can say I base Geno on is I base Geno on a character I played in the game. She is so far-fetched from that original concept to begin with. She's completely original concept to me. My dad was a, is, was a merchant marine, and so I kind of understood sailing and things like that. And went and I did the research, verified the information, but she's just, you know, a whole person to herself. <laughs> you know, I love all the quotes my kid always says about her. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, she's a hot mess, but she's our hot mess. She is just that strong woman who knows who she is. That's constantly fighting against societal expectations. Right. That's, you know, that's that's who she is. And she's pure and whole of herself. And then there's Roger, who is her potential romantic interest. Uh-huh. And he is an interesting character as well. Um, he fits more of the stereotype you would expect. He's a British mm-hmm. naval officer when you first meet him. Uh, but as you get to know him, you realize that he doesn't fit into that, into that hole very well. You you start to learn a lot of stuff about him and that you're like, oh, this is just some basic white dude. And he's not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I love. About, and and I don't want to reveal anything because it's fun because, you know, because even when I do character descriptions and things like that, I slowly open that information to you so that it doesn't drag down on the scenes and it doesn't drag down on the story, but adds to it. So, you know, when you learn about Roger's heritage and when you learn about, you know, what's going on with him, you you know, it's a whole separate story. And I have one person's like, I absolutely love this, but I love Roger's story so much. Thank you for sharing it.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> great. So, yeah. So um, I just want to let the listeners know that um, when we're done with our interview, I have made a recording of chapter one of Daughter's Fortune. So um, if you can please stay tuned, you'll get the chance to hear the first chapter of Daughter's Fortune. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for coming today. It was a lot of fun. I just wanted to say thank you for coming and sharing with us. This was fascinating. Um, I've never had a chance to talk to somebody about um, the clothing and culture and style uh, of the past. I, that was fascinating and good to learn. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have a great day. And uh, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Daughter's Fortune, not a pirate book. By Cheryl L. G. Trent. Chapter 1 It's Man's World. Jeannot politely pushed her way through the standing crowd as best as she could in skirts and wedged shoes. She blew the curls around her face out of her eyes and grunted once or twice before reaching her destination. She looked over the wooden banister, beyond the crowded seats below, and then even further to the square where the officials sat. Couldn't we get a seat? she sighed to her companion. "'You are not permitted,' he replied. "'Well, that's just ridiculous,' she humped. "'Every day I find a new place I can't go.' Jean-Pierre smirked. "'Wait till they call your name.' This was not a statement. This was a moment of anticipated mirth, at the look on their faces when they realized who she was. She smirked back. "'That is always an enjoyable moment.' The gentleman to her left looked at her with odd curiosity, and she flashed him a brilliant smile That distracted him completely. He began to introduce himself when a great rapping sound silenced the hall. Far below in the square, a man read silently from a list of charges before clearing his throat and saying, (coughs) This session is for charges of smuggling, piracy, and illegal transportation of unauthorized goods. Cheneau leaned towards Jean-Pierre. Are those not all the same thing? They're British, he replied. Their laws are redundant. She snorted quite. The voice below continued, including any contestation of fines, levies, and confiscation. The man tipped back his wig to itch his sweating head. Well Jean Jean He paused, reading the name more closely, and conferred with a colleague. What is this name? he quietly asked. His colleague reviewed the name and said, I think that is French. But is that Dutch? Either way, I don't really care for either. Just call it out and get it on with. The bailiff nodded and continued. Jeanne, Jeanneau, Jeanneau, Ulrichsen. Jeanneau, Ulrichsen. Jeanneau rolled her eyes, but then raised her voice to ring clearly above the crowd. Aye. There was an audible shuffle of heads and bodies as they turned their eyes toward the back of the hall. She lifted her fan, waved at the officials, and then gave a small curtsy. The bailiff looked confused and repeated the name. Captain John Elricson. She lifted her chin, allowing the light to shine on her elegant neck. It is Captain Jeanneau Elricson, and I am she. She allowed the usual murmur of astonishment to flow through the crowd, but kept a serene smile on her face and looked directly at the presiding judge the judge examined her. She was French in features from her high cheekbones and sharp nose, but held the height of a netterman. He waved a hand and then declared, Please, escort the captain to the main floor, so I do not have to bellow. Exiting through the masses was easier than their original entry. She maintained elegance as she entered the main floor and stood before the presiding official. He examined her manner of dress and deduced a woman of fine breeding, but certainly of the gentry class. Her skin was pale, fresh cream, and her hair the color and thickness of a lion's mane with rich, ruddy tones blended with deep, golden strands. Nothing about her appearance would suggest she was a sailor, let alone the captain of a ship. He glanced at the man standing next to her, who was long, lanky, had piercing blue eyes, and was most definitely French. He banged a large rock several times to quiet the hall, then spoke. You are Captain Jeanne? You are a captain of the Daughter's Fortune. I am. She replied. Are you aware of the charges? I am, but they are false. You wish to contest the charges? No, they are false. Blinking hard at her bold yet dulcet tone, he cleared his throat. Then requested, Bailiff, please list the charges. The bailiff cleared his own throat and then said. Uh, The daughter's fortune was found in possession of several commodities that were found necessary to his majesty's navy and are to be procured. Any refusal is finable by law. But neither I nor my ship are under British rule. The bailiff glared at the interruption, but replied, Firstly, once you set port in British territory, you are subject to her laws. Which reminds me, who is your sovereign? The sea, she said, and flashed a smile that got a chuckle from the audience. Captain Ulrichson, only pirates make such claims. Her smile dropped, and her demeanor hardened. I solemnly swear I am no pirate, but I was born at sea and will likely die at sea. He rubbed his brow. Are you Dutch or French? My father is Dutch, my mother... She stopped speaking when Jean-Pierre squeezed her hand. He silently reminded her that the Brits were almost always at odds with France and currently in alliance with the Dutch. To mention her French mother, or that she was technically Catholic, would not be the wisest action. The king may be Catholic, but the government was still Protestant. Are you Dutch? Yes. I'm sure my height gave it away. Or was it my hair? A mixture of laughter and chuckling rippled through the audience. The officer glowered at her, unamused. Well then, under current treaties, the Dutch are our allies, and therefore, Dutch goods are subject to use by the British for military purposes, if necessary. And I assume the British Navy is already in need of commandeering commodities? In this case, yes. She worked hard not to let a frown on her face. I still wish to do business with the British, but these commodities are spoken for. If you do not wish to relinquish your commodities, then you can pay the equivalent to the coffers. So my profits suffer either way? Your profits are of no concern to his majesty. Obviously. Madam, I suggest you curb your tongue. Jeanneau glared at him, but calmly asked. If I wish to protest these actions... You just did, and it was denied. Relinquish the goods or pay the fine. Your ship will remain in port until you do so, and will continue to pay the port fee until the issue is resolved. He then motioned to the bailiff to proceed to the next case. The bailiff picked up the next docket, giving her no further acknowledgement. Janot took in a deep breath, then with both force and grace, exited the chambers. She waited a good distance from the building before she started to fume and produce profanities that Jean-Pierre was accustomed to, but not to those she walked past. Perhaps, Curson French, he suggested, and bowed to passerbys who caught snippets of what she said. They were halfway back to the ship before she had recollected herself and started to make intelligible sense. Unbelievable, she said, as she stopped at a cart and purchased a meat pie. Not really. Jean Pierre replied. I know. She sighed and took a bite. The pie was noticeably hot, as Janot tried to cool the bite in her mouth. She finished the bite and blew on the rest of the pie. But it is still despicable. Agreed. She took another bite. A young street urchin rushed up to her, completely out of breath, and said Pardon me, Miss Mouth full, she looked down at him quizzically. I have a message for you, ma'am. He brandished an envelope. She took the letter and opened it. A look of shock crossed her face. It's a writ. Our fees have been paid for. Jean-Pierre stuttered. By who? It doesn't say. How odd and so quickly. Well, I will not scoff at fate. If Olaf is back with the new hires, we will set sail at Tide. Thank you again to Cheryl for meeting with us. You can find Cheryl on social media at CLG Butterfly. To keep up with the various novels and authors that we will feature, you can follow my secret obsession on Facebook, Instagram, and X at Cherish Lively, or visit the website at tinyurl.com/cherishlively.